This is Trying Days, The Journey, episode 94, the second half of Chris Milligan's recent conversation with Paul Fitzgerald and Elizabeth Gould, husband and wife co-authors of many books. They discuss JFK's peace speech at American University and how its principles can still bring the world together today. The Valediction is Paul and Liz's two-book novelized memoir about their journalism in Afghanistan in the 1980s, their return home, where American media would not broadcast the truths that they had found, and their journey into history, mysticism, and the real power behind empires. Myths are real, but they come from another dimension. So we have to actually change the definition of fiction in order to truly understand what fiction is. I believe fiction is when you intentionally distort facts or intentionally leave them out to misrepresent and mislead people. That is fiction. And that, my friends, is what we call propaganda. But people have been led to believe that propaganda is a legitimate tool. What, what are us uh, you know, poor, uh, suffering uh, populace to do? We're supposed to resurrect JFK's peace plan. We're supposed to take the blueprint that he left for us that is so inspiring and so it's intriguing because you can really see what he was up against in the presentation. He makes a lot of points that are speaking to guys like Curtis LeMay, who yeah. told JFK that he wanted to run off and drop 200 nuclear bombs on the Soviet Union before you know, some point. And, and JFK realized you know, what kind of nutcakes he was dealing with. But you can really see in the speech, he knew he had to speak to those guys and he had to speak to them in a very specific way to guarantee that common sense people would see the point, even if someone, you know, some of these neocon type people would never see it. More, more people would be less attracted to, I think, the neocon uh, dialectic um, if they had the kind of clear thinking that JFK presented about how to um, really you know, deal with the complexity of differing worldviews, having to come to some common conclusion that is good for both. We all breathe the same air. Yes, we there are, are some lines in it, yes. The, the lines that will really move people who are not caught up in the dialectic, it's, it's all there. But you can see his effort at trying to make sure that he was gonna shut down some of the, you know, the the extreme, you know, the, basically the neocon guys, the ones that wanted war, they did not want detente. What Brzezinski basically did when he shut down the whole detente with the Soviet Union by tricking the Soviets into Afghanistan. And the neocons came out of Trotsky and they just... Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, they're all Trotsky. Oh yeah, it's, yeah. it's pure Trotsky. Right. And, and yeah. that's what's so ironic is that, and it's all the dialectic. Yeah. You know, you can't argue with them and that, you know, Fulbright talked about it. He complained about Senator it. Back in Fulbright, yeah. Senator Fulbright complained about it. Wrote a wonderful article. 1972. Uh, and, and he complained about it, said, you can't argue with these people. They don't want to come to a conclusion. They don't want to, they don't want to make anything better. They just want to win the argument. And they then they he said they'll they'll just simply tell you the opposite of whatever it is they, you know, you 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 stand for. What does the valediction mean? What 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 is the valediction? What is valediction it? is the last word. It's the, it's the farewell, the desire to incorporate all the things that you know in a statement or a book 
or an expression so that people can appreciate the context in which you learned what you learned and then share that with them. And, and that's what I wanted to do. I, I really you know, said to Liz, I said, we have to take the experience that we had and put it in this form so that people will understand the context with which we uh, you know, came to know these things. And what has been really miraculous is writing it and going back through events that I thought that I really understood. Yeah. All of a sudden, I realized there's other stuff happening here. There's another yeah. layer underneath. And then in writing this and going back through these experiences and then comparing my notes with other events and sometimes with dreams that I had had or Liz had had at the time, and we realized that we had had a very, very multidimensional experience. You uh, started uh, having dreams. Did these freak you out when, the, when it first happened? What, what, what were your thoughts? Uh, was it just, oh, this is another world or? What, well, it wasn't remember? that we didn't have dreams that we didn't consider important and that we didn't talk about with each other. But when we started contacting Oliver Stone, and discovered that we were having dreams with him, you know, instantly, uh, as if we were meeting with him, as if we knew him, we kind of, it, a click went off in my head and said, what's this? What is going on? I'd never had that happen before. As we started to get closer, you know, to really meeting him and working with him, the level of intensity so was so overwhelming. I mean, we're talking about in one year, you know, five, four, three, four, five dreams could happen in a week. And, you know, we logged many of them because we had to make, but that's the trick about what we really learned, I think, that about this is that a dream is incredibly difficult to translate when it happens because you don't actually know yet what it might be a piece of. Sometimes the answer may come 10 years later. It, it makes it, that's one of the reasons why we were able to actually figure a lot of things out over a 30 year span was because we logged so many of the dreams, we're able to go back and say, I remember something. And then we go back to our log and we go, oh my God, that was, a, that, that answers this dream yeah. that, that it, happened 10, 20 years it's ago. It's like the concept of packet switching. I mean, the way the internet functions, you don't get, it's not analog. It right. doesn't start. So we, we all grew up in an analog world, tape recorders and all this other stuff, you know, radio signals and TV signals where you've got the beginning and the end, right? Well, packet switching takes a piece of it, puts it out here, puts it in space, reassembles it in your computer. It brings it back down again. It, it's, an, it's analogous to what you get with dreams. And that's what we began to discover is, is that there's a holographic nature to this whole process, like the holographic universe, where you've got all the information is out there. It's all scrambled. It's all over the place. But your brain, your mind is assembling it. And so writing, as you put this idea together, it starts to gain an identity of its own yeah. that is outside of your own personal reality. Right. And that's what we experienced. I mean, the guy that hired us to go to Afghanistan from CBS News In wound, 1981. 1981 wound up meeting our daughter. In San Francisco. In San Francisco because of his daughter who was in San Francisco. Like 2010. And then they all wound up coming to our Christmas party. In 2011. In 2011. Yeah. It's like, 
of all the people, you know, the old, the, the line from, uh, you know, of all the gin joints in all the world, you know, <laughs> they have, why did they have to walk in a mine? Right. I'm sitting there at seven o'clock on two nights before Christmas. And I see Peter Larkin walking in the door and I said, I cannot believe this is but actually how he, happening. How he ended up getting there yeah. because of our daughter, you know, was the most amazing series of synchronicities. When it happened in 2011, Paul and I were convinced that we just had one of the most amazing fulfillments. A 30-year cycle had been completed with Peter Larkin. And he was really, you know, very pleasant. I mean, we did not have a totally pleasant experience with CBS. We weren't that happy with the story they did put out. But um, although we were glad they did it, at least what they did. Uh, but anyway, he, you know, he definitely uh, was a you know, was, did not want to work with us when we got the second trip. So that was the end of that. So this was a pleasant exchange, but something else happened that really made me realize, and I only recently thought about it this way. I was pregnant with Alyssa when the CBS news story happened. And I was pregnant when I met Peter Larkin. And I, that's why I didn't go on that trip because I was pregnant. Well, when Peter came here with his daughter, at the end of the evening, both of them ran up to me and Peter was just giddy at the idea he had met Alyssa in utero. He was not there for us. He, he adored our daughter because she was so helpful to him when his daughter, what had happened is my um, niece who lives in New York knew Brett, called Alyssa and said, my friend is coming to live in San Francisco. Would you please help her find, you know, do whatever you could. Alyssa did so much for her and eventually met her father, Peter. He just adored Alyssa. So the, but I'm making this point. In 2011, when this happened, all we could think about was what does this mean in our you know, arc with this 30-year connection? And when I realized that for Peter, it was an arc with Alyssa, it really didn't have anything to do with us. Yeah. Alyssa, Alyssa took him for a tour of City Lights Bookstore and our book was on display there. And he said to her, he said, I think I sent these people to <laughs> Afghanistan. <laughs> so it's like, you've got this incredible, yeah, yeah. and Alyssa has, she's had a lot of experiences with oh. Afghans and exiles and well, cab drivers in San Francisco yeah. that I met when I was there in 1981. And Well, the one that was actually the most unbelievable was when Alyssa went on a trip to Spain with a friend. And she decided to go on her own, very spontaneously on a little boat trip. So she goes on this boat trip, she meets some people. They invite her to a party after the boat trip. She says, oh great, I'll go with you. She goes in and she is introduced to a young man and it turns out he's an Afghan. And she says, oh, my parents have worked with Afghans. And she tells him who they are. And he says, oh, my aunt Sima Wali wrote the introduction to your book, your parents' book. Now, talk about you know, and that's just one of many. Yeah. So. Well, well, well. Let let let's get into a, another area here. Uh, I mean, Paul, you are a Fitzgerald, correct? Correct. Right, and you are related oh. to Honey Fitz, who was JFK's grandfather, correct? Correct. There's some other synchronicities uh, going on here. To tell the folks a little bit about the uh, Fitzgeralds and and uh, all of this stuff. Well, you know, in growing up in Boston, being a Fitzgerald is kind of like Smith, you know. But not everybody. But the thing is, is that I've discovered over the years that there are different branches of the Fitzgerald family, and it's a very large family. 
there's the, the, the Leinster branch, which is around uh, what they used to call the Pale around Dublin, which is where the, where, um, the, the English king used to control. And then there's the southwestern branch called Desmond. It's, uh, Desmond means South Munster. And so uh, there was actually a Desmond Fitzgerald who ran, worked in the CIA when JFK was there. And it's a very specific group of Fitzgeralds with a specific DNA, actually. It's a, it's a long story, but you could go back, you know, we can pretty much trace it back directly a thousand years to uh, the, the, Gerald of Windsor, the origin, yeah. yeah, Gerald of Windsor and, uh, and, his, and, his, and his grandfather who, um, who came here, uh, Otho. Otho, they're not quite sure who Otho is, where he came from or how he got there, but his influence, his son, Walter, Fitz Otho, I mean, Fitz meaning son, it's French, Norman French. His son was very, uh, had states up and down the Thames. So they were very close to William the Conqueror and William Rufus, the, the second king of England, Norman king of England. So they're cl clearly, the, the family can trace its steps from one generation to another generation. But I, I think it's important though, to understand that there is a very specific Fitzgerald family, They're, they were the Earls of Desmond. And that's the line that JFK is associated with. Right. And those are the ones who were basically, you know, considered to be uh, the threat, you know, to um, yeah. the, the English Elizabeth, throne, the Elizabethans. Because they came, they were, their, their ancestor, their great, 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 great ancestor was connected to uh, the court in Wales, the Welsh court, which was considered to be the oldest British uh, royalty at the time, a, a thousand years ago. What these Fitzgeralds really did <coughs> was so um, damning and caused them to be a target of a genocide, basically, was the fact that these Fitzgeralds fell in love with the Irish people. And that is a crime that the Crown does, ne does not ever forgive. Well, they were accused, actually, of starting a race of their own. Yeah. And mm -hmm. so there were all kinds of things. So it's from the very beginning, or the Fitzgeralds going to Ireland, you had a real conflict. There was a real attitude coming out of London towards the Fitzgerald family, which developed into absolute hatred over 400 years. After World War II, it seems to me there was just such a momentum to the juggernaut of the military industrial complex with a lot of hard work from people in the shadows, as Chris calls them, you know, CIA, et cetera, getting good with regime change in other countries. But the time was right for a president like Kennedy to stand at American University and say, this is unsustainable. Why is it going to be explored in the roundtable on May 25th? Well, I, I would want to make one point about um, JFK's um, platform for peace, which had not a, a, a chance of going anywhere, aside from the fact that he might have been killed directly for it. I mean, literally because of it. Um, when we worked with Roger Fisher from the Harvard Negotiation Project to try and um, uh, negotiate the Soviets out of Afghanistan, we brought him in to do that, and he went with us to Afghanistan. And what Roger discovered was that the Soviets actually really did not want to be there, and they definitely wanted to be negotiated out. What Roger had to confront was something he was not at all prepared to confront was the fact that there was absolutely no interest in the Reagan administration to negotiate. And, and he was in shock and horrified. And it was actually the first time, apparently, at least that's the impression we got, that he ever really confronted 
the idea that what if you come up against someone who has no intention of negotiating at all, okay? And no matter what, even if they do make a commitment, they don't intend to keep it if it doesn't serve their purpose. Well, I think that's what we're talking about, about people understanding we've been through that. We're now ready to walk away from that. And the ones who are still stuck thinking that that is a, an, an okay way of handling the needs of the world are going to be left in the past. Okay, we're going into a future and we know that, uh, that we, can, we can take the, the actual power represented by what JFK left for us and literally activate it at will. But it requires all the people coming together and all the people who are not trapped in the dialectic and are not trapped in uh, evil. Um, they've got to you know, do this because they have, they, they're winning against evil, which is really the mindset that the dialectic represents. The actual power represented by what JFK left for us is an action plan that we need. We need to have something we can plant in the ground that we can put all that positive energy into and, and make it happen. Something for people to believe it. And something for people. It's to that just it. that speech is is that on steroids because I can see how it could open up tangents and conversations that teach the principles of the American founding inside a context of a mystical reality where my intention to love and enjoy this moment helps the moment. The moment feels it. The moment returns it. You feel it and it lightens your load and you have a better day and I have a better day because I help you have a better day, which helped <laughs> me have a better day. And it's this self-fulfilling thing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And the energy flows as long as nobody is stuck with the dialectic. Yeah. We've had a long interview, Chris. I think you want to uh, Towards a more and... perfect union. Onwards. Exactly.